Welcome to the Healthcare Executive Podcast, providing you with insightful commentary and developments in the world of healthcare leadership. To learn more, visit ACHE.org. And without further ado, your host, Chris Caraggio. Hey, folks, welcome to yet another Healthcare Executive Podcast. I am your host, Chris Caraggio, and um, the episode title, very appropriate for the times that we are in right now. It's called Lessons from the Front Lines of COVID-19, and we have a very appropriate guest in Warner Thomas. We're going to start our conversation in just a moment, but first let me kind of read you Warner's bio so you can get to know him and, and what he's accomplished. He's the CEO for Oshner Health, that's Louisiana's largest nonprofit academic health system and its largest private employer. He was named CEO back in 2012 after 14 years as president COO. Now as Louisiana's largest nonprofit academic healthcare system, Oshner provides coordinated clinical and hospital patient care all connected electronically to provide convenience for, for all the patients across the region uh, by Oshner's 41 own managed and affiliated hospitals and specialty hospitals and more than 100 health centers and urgent care centers. Now, Warner has been instrumental in something specific, uh, developing a population health focus at Oshner. That's delivering programs and resources that empower patients to effectively manage chronic conditions while also maintaining focus on preventative measures. Also screenings and education to help people just stay well and avoid preventable disease. Now, additionally, he launched Innovation Oshner, Oshner's innovation lab designed to create health advancements and revolutionize patient-centered care. Again, he's a very appropriate guest for this episode. Now, Warner is dedicated to service to healthcare. He was appointed to the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission in 2014. He has served on numerous boards, including currently as chairman of the American Hospital Association Section for Health Systems Governing Council. He received his undergraduate degree in accounting and computer information systems from New Hampshire College and his Master of Business Administration degree from Boston University Graduate School of Management. Now, among his many honors, uh, Mr. Thomas has received multiple awards for the um, from the Anti-Defamation League, from Glassdoor, Ernst & Young, and yesterday we saw him at the White House Coronavirus Task Force press briefing. So we are pleased to welcome in Warner Thomas. Warner, thanks so much for being here. Hey, it's great to be with you. You got it. Okay, so before we kind of get into our conversation, um, you you were raised in, in Vermont, right, in rural Vermont, and you started as a CPA. How did you, how did you kind of transition into healthcare? Well, it's kind of an interesting story. I, I grew up in a small town in Vermont and um, went to uh, undergraduate school and, and studied accounting and computer information systems, had a double major, and uh, really started Ernst & Young and my uh, original clients, I had a number of clients to begin with, but over time started to specialize more in healthcare. Uh, and, and after about three or four years uh, at EY, I left and went to work for one of my clients in healthcare. And since then, I've continued to grow and develop my career from a healthcare perspective. All right. Okay. So that's how you got on this road. And again, we appreciate you being on it, especially here uh, in this time we're living in, obviously, in the midst of the COVID 19 pandemic. So, um, right now, I understand you guys are currently treating patients in 20. 20- 
of your managed and owned hospitals uh, while also working with everybody across the Gulf region, all your partners. So we appreciate yeah. you again, taking some time out from the front sure. lines and, and, and kind of sh share what's going on. Uh, so having said that, Warner, tell us a little bit about Oshner Health and then also, you know, where we are um, right now with this pandemic in general to start. Sure. So Auctioner Health, uh, as you indicated, is the largest um, not-for-profit health system in the Gulf South and, and also the largest health system in Louisiana. We have a, a large clinic practice. We employ about 1,500 physicians. And as you said, you know, we, we own or manage or affiliate with about 40 hospitals. We're primarily, uh, our, our headquarters are based in New Orleans. That's our largest market that we uh, serve as, as New Orleans. And certainly that's been impacted. Uh, New Orleans has been impacted significantly with the COVID-19 virus. Um, you know, Oxner has had a, a long history in this integrated model of care of a, a group practice and started as a group practice you know, about almost 80 years ago and then evolved into more of an integrated uh, entity when it started, uh, you know, building and owning hospitals back in the in the 50s, and so we've continued to advance and and develop that integrated model, you know, over the past several decades. As we have uh, entered, you know, the the past, you know, probably seven or eight years, I took over as the CEO in 2012, and really started building partnerships with you know many hospitals around the region in order to, you know, help them deal with the challenges of the Affordable Care Act, but also to build, um, you know, common allies to, you know, move down the road of population health, move down the road of improving health care in our state, reducing cost. And that's why we've had a, a very big population health strategy. We created the Auctioner Health Network, you know, about four or five years ago, you know, really geared to, with, with some of our hospital partners and over 3,000 physician partners, and we've continued to drive the healthcare agenda in the state of Louisiana. Um, you know, as it, as it turns to COVID-19, um, you know, New Orleans has been one of the hot spots you know, over the past uh, several weeks. You know, we started watching this closely from at Auctioner, you know, back when uh, we saw the escalation in Wuhan and as it hit the, the northwest area in, in Seattle and the Washington area. And we had started planning, you know, several months ago, thinking about how would we deal with, uh, you know, COVID patients? How would we deal with, you know, PPE Um and, and once again, there's no COVID-19 playbook. Nobody can go to the bookshelf and pull it off and say, okay, these are the things to do. So I think our focus on being, you know, we hear a lot about agility, but I, I think this idea of adjusting and adapting to the environment and what's happening is critical to success in, in any situation, but certainly in this situation of having a pandemic, I think we've been able to respond appropriately because we prepared, but also we adjusted and adapted as the situation, you know, warranted. So, you know, well, obviously you just said you, you adjusted and adapted very important in this time, but you also said there's no playbook. So, you know, our listeners probably be interested in your role as a leader um, in this crisis. What do you have any specific like must do tasks right now? Sure. That you apply every day. Yeah. So I think, and I got asked this a lot in Hurricane Katrina because we went through Hurricane Katrina and did. We were one of three hospitals that stayed open and took care of, you know, thousands and thousands of patients when the healthcare system was was really 
significantly impaired in the New Orleans area. And as I told folks then, and I, and to me, it's the same situation now is this planning starts years ago by building a good team and by investing in your team and having people that are, um, you know, well-prepared, that are confident, that have good skills, that work together as a team and, and are people that can make good decisions and do that in challenging times. And, you know, you find that, you know, uh, very good leaders do extremely well in these types of situations. They flourish and they make good decisions and they do a great job leading their team. And those that are more marginal, I think, are challenged and, and have more difficulty. So this all starts with building a great team, quite frankly. I think second is I would say it's about communication. You know, early on, we started having uh, we set up a small command center. We put the right people in the room to decide how we're going to adjust to this. We continued to monitor and change our approach, you know, based upon the number of patients that, that we had coming to our, you know, organization and how the environment changed once schools closed and once we kind of had the shelter in place. And I think communication, you know, multiple times per day with our, with our leadership team, probably our top, you know, 100 people in the organization. And then uh, communication, you know, weekly with employees, with leaders, with our partner hospitals, you know, twice a week communication with our board, you know, because this is a time when things are changing all the time and uh, we may be making good decisions, but if we're not communicating them effectively, then, you know, we're, we're not going to be able to be as effective as an organization. So I think communication is really critically important. Um, you know, I think the third uh, item is to really just understand the situation that you're in, like what is happening around you? Do you have good information about numbers of patients, how many people in your facilities, What's what are the issues at your facilities, how are you moving resources around? And that's what that, you know, twice a day communication with our top 100 people was all about is where did we have a hot spot? How do we move and adjust to that? You know, if we didn't have PPE at an adequate level, how are we going to adjust that? How is supply chain helping our staff? Where do we have staffing needs? I mean, these are all things that are that are addressed on our leadership call a couple of times a day. And, you know, if you look over the past month, I mean, we've treated, you know, well over 60% of the patients in New Orleans who are COVID positive. And we've been treating, you know, probably somewhere between a third and 40% of the patients in the state um, over the past couple of weeks. And, you know, our census got as high as, you know, probably mid 800 uh, COVID positive patients in our facilities. You know, we're down now under, you know, 700. So we, we did work through the peak and, and have started to trend down. But, you know, things like opening 110, you know, ICU beds in a two-week period of time, moving two or three of our med surge units off of our main campus into one of our long-term acute care facilities to allow more capacity and to move those rooms to ICU beds, uh, staffing them appropriately. These are things that there's not a playbook for it. You have to adjust and adapt to what's happening and, and have the leaders that can execute that. You, uh, obviously, you talked a lot about communication uh, with your staff, with your top leaders. How, um, especially right now where we are, Warner, what about communicating reassurance? How often, 
you said you passed the peak, but how often, maybe in the last month or so, and, yeah. and as we continue on, have you, have you, you know, had to provide that reassurance and how do you encourage, you know, just kind of keep moving forward? Yes, that's absolutely critical. I mean, you know, all of the messages that we, we have would start and end with, you know, we are going through a challenging time. We're going to be okay and we're going to make it through this. We're going to get on the other side of this, just like we have other challenging times that have come before us, whether it's the financial crisis, whether it's Hurricane Katrina, whether it was Hurricane Rita that we went through, whatever whatever the situation, we will get to the other side of this. And people need that reassurance. They need to understand that, hey, we got a plan and we would go through. Hey, these are the high level things of what we're doing and why we're doing it. Um, I think it's important to not just tell people what you're going to do, but why you're going to do it and why that's a good decision. Because um, I think folks, they may not always agree with you, but if they understand the why, many times they can get their head around, you know, the, the decision and what's happening. So I, I absolutely think that that's part of it. And you're right. I mean, sharing the positive news that's happening because, you know, when you're going through a scary time, uh, and, you know, last week, probably about 10 days ago, we started talking about the flattening of the curve. And then last week really started to report, you know, the the numbers of patients that were being discharged COVID positive and going home, you know, and it was growing by 60 to 70 a day. And now as we sit here today, it's about 1,200 that have left our hospitals and have gone home COVID positive. They've made it through this. The numbers of folks that are being, you know, not just intubated on the ICU that are being extubated and leaving the ICU going to our med surge units. So sharing those positive stories and helping people understand that we're making progress is so important when you're going through an uncertain time and communicating the things we know and communicating the things that we're unsure of and we'll continue to monitor, I, I think is another key component as we think about this. Yeah, I, I think it's that, it's that balance of, you know, reassuring and positive things to say, but also the cold hard facts, right? I mean, Correct. and that's what we've been doing as a nation, hopefully, and certainly for you guys in, 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 the, in the thick of things down there in Louisiana. Um, yeah. Have you guys had to, uh, t talking about staff, have you had to redeploy any, you know, a, a lot to manage through this crisis? How, what have, how have you organized that? We we have we have redeployed a lot of people. I mean, we have a we have a huge um, uh, you know ambulatory you know uh, services and clinics, and you know we've seen our services in those areas down probably sixty five to seventy percent. So that's obviously been a, a big a big challenge. Um, so we've redeployed many folks from our clinic to be supply runners to our floors. Um, Many of our medical assistants in our clinics are now being, you know, nurse assistants in, in many of our inpatient units where we've had, you know, tremendous growth in inpatient census. Um, you know, our critical care docs have done a great job managing the ICU, but our surgeons and anesthesiologists are, you know, surgeons, many of them, especially some that have come out of training recently, you know, have uh, more experience in managing ventilated patients and working with the anesthesiologists that have that background. So they've been deployed um, differently. So it, it absolutely has been uh, a process. And, and even folks in our corporate areas who have 
um, been redeployed to do temperature checks going into our facilities to work on loading docks, helping us with you know more PPE that's coming in, working in our supply chain to help us in in areas there. So we have absolutely redeployed a lot of folks around the organization. And and I'll say that uh, people have been very flexible. I think they are appreciative of stability. Um, we have not laid off or furloughed people um, at this point. And, you know, our principles are around, you know, job security and job prevention, around um, stability, and then around stability of the organization. So obviously we can continue to do the things that we need to do. So we make our decisions as we think about that and having a stable organization so we can take great care of patients. Because if you're not stable and in a great place as, a, as an organization, you can't take great care of patients, which is why we exist. So I think these principles are important for people to understand. So. Yeah, everybody kind of has to get on board and do a lot of different things uh, in, yeah. in this time. You know, a lot of folks aren't privy, uh, obviously, as you are, uh, to what's going on, maybe in a hot spot. Uh, you know, we see reports on the news of New York and we see reports from Detroit and obviously from New Orleans and maybe from Florida early on from Washington State. Um, what, have you had a chance? Obviously, you're seeing it. You're on the front lines. That's why we're doing this episode. Just by where we are right now, even, I know we've never been through anything like this, but have you taken a moment really to step back and look at your organization and are, are you like are you amazed that things have gone as smoothly and, and like just like the staff everybody kind of doing something different as well as what they were schooled to do um, is it time for you has that dawned on you yet or will that come later where you kind of look and go man we, we really did the best we could and I'm proud of this yeah. You know, I, I absolutely have, have done that. I mean, I'm not surprised because we have such a great team and, and our physicians and our nurses and all of our clinical team folks are, are just so professional, so well-trained, and I think, have, frankly, are, are crisis-tested, and you know, we've gone through some challenges. And so the interesting thing about going through those challenges is that you know you can do it and you know you can get to the other side. So... Um, I think that's a really important, uh, you know, learning lesson from a career perspective or anytime you go through adversity, you know, when you're going through it, it's very challenging. When you get to the other side, you realize it was a good learning experience and you have those lessons now, you know, when you move forward. So, you know, I, I think we have handled it well. I mean, you can always Monday morning quarterback and say we could have done certain things different or better, but I think we've done a great job taking care of our patients. We've done a great job being a huge resource for our city and to our state. We've done a great job, you know, keeping our employees safe and making sure they got the right PPE. Um, it's amazing how many people have come to work with us over the past couple of weeks because we've done such a great job in taking care of our employees and making sure they have a safe environment, have the equipment and the and the safety protection that they need. So I'm, I'm, uh, you know, this one, as I said, was different. I mean, our supply chain people, you know, working with a local distillery to make, you know, hand sanitizer, um, our innovation auctioner group, they heard we had face shield issues. And so they 3D printed, you know, some mock face shield and then worked with a local company and start producing, 
you know, our own face shields and, you know, now producing things several thousand a week. Um, a local clothing company that uh, I'm not even sure, frankly, how we made the connection, but we were able to get the right um, material for surgical gowns and masks. And they've been making surgical gowns for us over the past, you know, several weeks. And not that that, you know, uh, supplied everything that we needed, but it was a supplement and has been helpful. And, and these are things we've never done before. I mean, when they came to me and they said, oh, yeah, our supply chain field just worked on this and worked with our clinical people. And I was like, wow. I mean, that's innovation. That's creativity. That's drive. That's, you know, being a self-starter. No one asked folks to do this. They just went and did it. And so I know there's lots of um, examples of that in many healthcare organizations across the country. But I think it just goes to show you the the invention, the ideas that can be generated when folks are going through a challenging time. And and I think there's been a tremendous amount of creativity uh, in this whole process. Let's talk a little bit about, Warner, the um, what we talked about you, you helped develop, the, the population health focus at Oshner, and specifically sure. for vulnerable populations going through this COVID-19 pandemic, how do you reduce the impact or, or do you reduce the impact to these vulnerable populations? Yeah. So we, we've been working on, you know, population health and what I would call helping people live healthier, more productive lives, um, robust primary care, uh, being best in practice at ambulatory quality measures and all of our measures around screening and, and, hypertension control and diabetes control. I mean, we, we rank, you know, at or, or near the 95th percentile from an NCQA perspective in all of those measures. Uh, when we do the Medicare, you know, Advantage, Medicare share savings, we're always scoring very high from an ambulatory quality perspective. And, you know, I think what we're seeing is, um, you know, in COVID patients, I mean, it is folks that have hypertension or especially diabetes. It, it is folks that are have BMIs that are, you know, generally in excess of 25 um, or 30. And if you look at the percentage of people being admitted and the percentage of people that end up going to our ICU, I, I, you know, the percentage is somewhere in the neighborhood of 55 to 65 percent have BMIs, um, you know, over 30. So, this is all about preventative care. It is all about help, helping people live healthier, more productive lives. And we all have to do a better job of it. And I think one of the challenges we run into as a, as a, you know, as a society is we never think it's going to be us, right? Um, hey, you know, I can push that off and it's not going to be me. It's going to be my neighbor or the next person. And so we don't, we don't necessarily think about it until we, we have a problem. And so, you know, not that any of us want to go through the pandemic, but I'm hopeful that maybe one thing that will come of this is that we all do a better job taking care of ourselves and we all do a better job on personal responsibility for um, prevention. And and then the healthcare systems, you know, have to keep working hard to do a good job on, you know, ambulatory quality and managing chronic disease, which, you know, frankly, Historically, the healthcare system has not been good at that. So I, I, I'm proud of the work we've done there. Um, David Carmouche heads up our population health and, and auctioner health network, working with our partners. And he's a, 
you know, physician by training um, and and has done a, a lot of work in population health. And I think has really helped to push us to new levels there. But but look, we can always get better, and we can always make sure we're we're addressing um, you know new regions, new populations, and and that's going to be a goal for auctioner going forward as we really set a, a stake in the ground to help Louisiana be a healthier state. Um, Post-crisis, since you kind of, that, that's where we are right now in this conversation. Um, you know, we're, since we've never gone through anything like this, obviously everyone's learning every single day. And the, and, and the hope is that we're going we're gonna to be better in so many areas uh, coming out on the other side. Those are the silver linings that we all hope uh, yeah. to see and to live through. So let's talk about quickly the future. Uh, your thoughts about how healthcare overall will be changed due to this. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm hopeful that we'll do a better job on the, you know, outpatient and ambulatory side, as I said earlier. I mean, my first really big concern is that the economic toll that this pandemic is going to take on health systems and hospitals across America is absolutely massive. Now I know that it's massive on the airlines and it's massive on uh, lots of you know busy you know hotels and casinos and restaurants and whatnot and I and I totally understand that and appreciate that issue. But what's happened with us is um, and with with hospitals we've had to spend inordinate amounts of money to staff to get equipment to expand capacity to get protective gear for our uh, employees and spend money in ways that we, you know, had, we're not spending money before at a time when all of our elective cases and things that, you know, really help, help us be, you know, financially stable are gone. And, and I think, you know, there's, I think the CARES Act uh, that's, that's out there and the first payments that came about a week ago and I think the second payments that are coming in a week or two is going to be helpful. But I still think the economic toll of, on health systems and hospitals and physicians is going to be massive. And I worry about what that does to the industry going forward and how does the industry come out of that. Um, so that's kind of a, a global kind of macro issue that I'm very, that I'm very concerned about. Um, you know, hopefully there'll be additional stimulus money that, you know, helps shore up hospitals, especially areas that were tremendous hotspots. But, but even the ones that weren't hotspots had to shut down elective cases and have seen, you know, very significant financial losses. Um, so assuming that gets sorted out, we can make our way through that. You know, I am, I am hopeful that um, one of the things we've seen through this whole process is a lot of collaboration. Uh, you know, in New Orleans, we took the lead to bring the other health systems together in New Orleans to have daily calls as we were going through the increasing number of cases to the spike of, you know, how we could work together and how we move patients around and sharing information. And we create a model kind of projecting the number of cases we we're going to see. And, and I think it was really great collaboration. And I'm hopeful that we'll see more of those types of things in the future and and more collaboration amongst, you know, physicians and health systems to do a better job taking care of our communities and have a more kind of common voice and approach to um, healthier living, healthier lifestyle, and proactive care, not reactive care. 
I think healthcare has for so long been reactive about fee for service. And when people call you or they come to the ER or they need help, you're reacting and taking care of them versus proactive care, which is, you know, doing health risk assessments, reaching out to people to make sure they have their screenings done, um, making sure they've got their diabetes and hypertension under control and, and doing outreach versus um, waiting for folks to come to us. And and really moving to a, a, a place where we use data, we've, we've now digitized all this information in our electronic medical records. How do we really put that to work to become more predictive? Can we predict people that are going to have diabetes or hypertension? Can we predict when they're going to be in control or fall out of control? You know, how do we predict more chronic disease if their air quality is down in a community and we have air quality measures, you know, we know ER emissions are going to go up for f folks that have any sort of respiratory disease. And I think this is a different approach to how we think about caring for people and caring for communities. And I'm hopeful that maybe this is an event that triggers some of that bigger thinking about population health and, and how we take care of the communities that we serve in a, in a broader way. Yeah, hopefully what you're saying is that collaboration leads to innovation, right? And, and, and just maybe we're going to find, like you mentioned, maybe we're going to find different ways to um, experience positive outcomes throughout this. That's, that's the hope, right? I think that's the hope, and I, and I think it should be our goal. I mean, once again, we exist to take care of people, and, and I think we exist to take care of people not just when they're sick, but we exist to take care of people and help them live well. And I think that's going to be, because uh, once again, I think COVID-19 was, has been more devastating to folks that do have chronic disease. And look, it, it impacted all ages and, and, you know, all walks of life and whatnot. But, you know, folks that did have, um, you know, much higher body mass indexes or folks that were, um, you know, having chronic disease, especially diabetes, I mean, they seem to be um, disproportionately negatively impacted by COVID-19. And so these are things that we've got to work on as individuals and we've got to work on as health systems to help individuals understand how to continue to take better care of themselves. Well, you guys are certainly doing your part, Warner. Uh, we appreciate all the hard work that Oshner and, and other healthcare providers are, are doing during this pandemic, during this crisis, uh, this critical time. And, and thank you so much. I, I, we know how busy you are, especially now, uh, but for taking so much time on this podcast to really provide some insight and some great information um, and some hope moving forward. Happy to do it. Thanks for the opportunity and uh, uh, you and hopefully everybody out there stay safe. So thank you so much. You too. Okay. That was Warner Thomas and folks, thank you so much. And uh, join us once again for another healthcare executive podcast. I'm your host, Chris Caraggio. Thanks for being here. This has been the healthcare executive podcast brought to you by the American college of healthcare executives. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider rating and reviewing on iTunes or your podcasting app of choice. And for more information, find us online at ACHE.org.